Welcome to the Glittering Bell Jar, a Harry Potter podcast. I'm Valerie. And I'm Bree. We're two writers and Harry Potter fans. In this podcast, we explore the Harry Potter series by reading it backwards. As you might recall, Harry and his friends discover the power of the Glittering Bell Jar in the Department of Mysteries as it causes objects to move backward and forward through time. We're doing the same thing each week, working backwards through a few chapters, starting with Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Ready to explore Harry Potter in a new way? Then join us in the Glittering Bell Jar. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of the Glittering Bell Jar. We are so excited because not only is this our fourth episode, we're officially out of that little like launch phase, the newborn phase of a podcast life. There was a big reunion just recently for Harry Potter fans around the world, and we want to talk about it today. And we're going to cover some episodes. We're just going to do a ton. We're going to try and pack it all into our normal like 45 minute episode length. But please forgive us if we run long because the reunion was lovely and we want to make sure we give that some space too. Yes. Hi, everyone. I am so excited to talk about the reunion. I am sure lots of Harry Potter fans around the world got the same chills that I did and just cannot wait to hear about it and talk about it. Okay, so before we dive into talking about the reunion, I want to ask, how are you, Brie? Oh, thank you. I am good. We had a bit of a COVID scare at my house, but um, I don't think I have it. Still waiting on results, so I cannot do anything, but, you know, that's okay. I'm here with you, so I feel like I'm doing something. And everyone, for the record, we're virtual. We're, we're not in the same room. We're definitely in two different rooms, <laughs> far, far apart. <laughs> so no, no worries about community spread through our podcast. Absolutely not. I had my New Year's with my niece, and that was fun. Uh, Yeah. How are you? How was your New Year's? Good. Thanks. It was laid back. Um, We are recording this just after the new year of 2022, if you're listening at a different time in time. We hung out. We had a really good dinner. We played some Mario Kart Wii and went to bed early. Love that. Super fun. But speaking of the new year, that was the day that the 20th anniversary reunion for Harry Potter was released on HBO Max. Yep. All the HBOs. I don't know yep. if it was any, and anyone, if you saw it on real TV, you were very lucky. You have a real <laughs> TV. So let's talk about it. You saw it. You told me that I needed to see it. So what did you think? Oh, man. Um, I absolutely loved it. So I watched uh, the first 45 minutes with my niece. She is eight. She has seen and read all of the Harry Potters, but she wasn't super into it. So I had to pause and then rewatch it today. And I got to see all of it. And I just, It just brought back all the feels for me, right? From the first time you ever read it to watching the movies to standing in line. You know, it brought back watching them talk about it and get all the nostalgia. It just made me get my nostalgia. What about you? How did you like it? It was really interesting to watch because they're pretty much our age. The, The main actors are all pretty much our age. And I, I really loved how they mixed in their interviews and their conversations with footage of the phenomenon Mm -hmm. that was Harry Potter when it was happening. I mean, I have chills now talking about it. Like (laughs) almost everyone seems to have found the series when it was the Prisoner of Azkaban. Like everyone, all the actors, everyone discovered it right around the same time, even though it was already the third book, right? As they started talking about the movies and then they show these, you know, pieces of footage of like people rushing into bookstores to get the latest copy and people waiting in line for movie premieres. And I was absolutely part of that. Like I grew up in Alaska. So as you can imagine, it was different, right? It was smaller, but there was that same level of energy and enthusiasm, even in a kind of far flung destination like Alaska. And I can, I can tell you, I remember midnight screenings with my dad because I was only like 14 and couldn't go to the movies on my own waiting in line. I remember this while the eighth movie came Mm -hmm. out. Like, I think I said, that's my last midnight movie premiere. I'm not going to do that anymore. Like that was a thing I did for Harry Potter Mm -hmm. And it's exhausting and it's lovely. And that was the chapter. So getting to see all of that and then also hearing all of the the kind of behind the scenes emotions and memories from the actors was really delightful because it was very much for them equally important and instrumental in their lives. Well, probably more so. I don't know. They're not doing a podcast and we are. So (laughs) who knows how much whose life was impacted more by Harry Potter? Mm, Probably still theirs, but... Yeah, yeah, you know, it actually got me thinking. So you you started picking up Harry Potter in your preteens, right? I was in seventh grade, so I would have been like 13. So I didn't pick up Harry Potter until I was a freshman in college. 
So I started going. You missed it. Yes, I totally did. <laughs> so I started thinking and I have a new theory. So I called a couple of my friends. So I had, I was a voracious reader. We talked about this, right? Like we both like went to the library. We were, we were book nerds and I was happily a book nerd. I always read like a hundred books during the summer, all that stuff. But I did not read Harry Potter. I was from a small town in Oklahoma, Southern Baptist, Assembly of God. Like there were like whispers about it and how it was like witchcraft and wizardry. And I lived with my grandfather, but he, he didn't honestly care. Like he was super religious, but for some reason I could have read the book. And I, I have a vivid memory, Valerie. And I like, I want to go back and like push, push me to the book. And I saw it and I, I swear somewhere on the book, it said the boy who lived. I don't know. Maybe it didn't. Maybe I made that up. But in my mind, I, I see the Harry, I see Harry Potter, the original like artwork of little Harry Potter. And I was like, that looks interesting. And then I was like, nah, no, no, I'm going to be a role follower. I'm not going to read it, you know? Oh my gosh. So, but my friends didn't either. So my friend, my best friend, Kit, he didn't read it. My best friend, Brandy, she didn't read it. And it wasn't until college when Kit picked it up and my brother picked it up and they both were like, no, you've got to read this. And so immediately I started reading it and borrowing my friend Kit's books and started doing the midnight premieres. I think it was maybe five whenever I started going to the, maybe, maybe five or six, maybe five or six when I started going to the midnight premieres. But I have a theory. You're 32, correct? 34. You're 34? Yeah, we're the same age. Oh, I thought you were two years younger than me. Dang. Okay. Well, there goes my theory because I think a lot of the people who picked it up as kids often were two years younger. Like they were the ones that picked it up the most. No, I, I we're the same age. And I distinctly remember um, her name was Ashley. I still remember her last name. I don't know if she's married, so I won't say her full name. I'll say, I'll say it because if she's married and she hears this, she's going to be like, oh my God, Ashley Borup. In seventh grade, we were very good friends at the time. And we had like social studies or something like that. And it, we had open reading and she was reading this book. And I can't remember if I asked her about it or if I forgot a book and she let me borrow her copy. But that was it. It was game over. There was no other book in my universe from then on, really. I mean, and I wasn't alone. Like that year, the librarian at our school library loved Harry Potter so much. She would open the library, let us come eat our lunch and read to us in the library what? every single day at lunch. So not only would I, I was not only that nerd who like volunteered at the <laughs> library, worked at, I worked at libraries. I was the kid who gave up my lunch breaks in middle school to go listen to Harry Potter read by someone else. It's kind of, it's a, you know, I'm not a parent, but like I think about when, when you're a parent and you see your kid get like sucked into something, you're like, I hope this is a good thing for them because I really don't know. And it, it just it just took over. It just took over my life and my interest. I mean, I I was into it. You can, if I go down in my like in my basement and go into the boxes of all my like kid stuff, yeah. there's figurines and playing cards and like I've got costumes, I've got all kinds of stuff that I've made. It became a whole world for me. So I I, I was joking, but I'm not joking. Like I don't know whose life was impacted yeah. more. And I think that in some ways it was good to hear the actors acknowledge that they recognize their role in that. Mm. Like they're portraying these characters, bringing them to life for especially the generation that was growing up with them. These people are like, they they changed our lives as much as our dollars and enthusiasm changed theirs to keep making movies. So yeah, I was, it was like, I was in it from the very beginning and I was like 13. It was so, I was literally, I grew up with Harry. Yeah. I was 13 when three was out. I was 15 when five was out. And then they kind of slowed down. But I was 19 when it ended. No, the final book came out. So oh, there you go. Yeah. And I luckily got to experience all of them in Alaska. I was actually up for a summer working in Alaska from college and took a bus from Denali to Anchorage to the only Barnes & Noble in the state <laughs> to be at the Barnes & Noble for the book release. I love because that. it was like, I'm not not going to get a copy of Deathly Hollows on the day it comes out. I've gotten every other book that I can on the day it comes yeah. out. Come on, people. Right. Yeah. So yeah, no, I've, I am, we are the same age, but that I break huh. your quiz or your, your, my theory, your poll. Yeah. Sorry about that. Huh. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm super disappointed. I wish I had, I feel like it could have like helped me so much because there's so many people in the story, like everyone that I like relate to. And I can only imagine in the ways that it would have affected me. So but just nobody in my grade was reading it. I probably would have easily been swayed to read it. But yeah, so it wasn't until, yeah, I think 18 or 19, my freshman year. And then of course, yeah, I read the first book and was like, what am I doing with my life not reading this and became instantly obsessed. Yeah. So tell me this, in the, the reunion, they talk about how, and I think it's actually Ivana Lynch who says like, this is a story that resonates with so many people because it's for a bunch of people who feel like they don't belong. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that way? 
Oh yeah, 100%. I mean, my story is probably a little bit more dramatic than some people's. I mean, I felt a little bit like Neville where like I lived with my grandfather. I felt a little bit like Harry because I didn't have parents. I was an orphan. I felt a little bit like Luna because I was just, you know, a little odd, a little like different. So, I mean, 100% I did. What about you? So I actually did not feel that way about it. When they said that, it didn't ring for it didn't ring true for me only because it was so mainstream or I don't know, I'm at some point I finally just like didn't care what other people thought. And so it didn't matter that I was on the outside. It didn't feel like I needed to find a place to fit. Yeah. So I didn't feel like I wasn't fitting in. That's maybe that's like the 34 year old Valerie yeah. like, projecting backward in time because I certainly did care what kids thought of me and I wanted to be liked and all that. But I didn't ever feel like it was a story for people who didn't fit in or that I resonated with it for that reason. Mm, yeah, that's fair. I guess I do know what you mean. Because I feel like so many people read Harry Potter. You know what I mean? Whether you were popular or a misfit or whatever. Yeah. And, and maybe her description is accurate. And it goes to show how much kids go through that phase mm. of just not feeling like they fit. Yeah. But I didn't really, I guess I didn't have that insight into myself as a kid to be like, these people are like me because they don't fit in either. Um, that there were lots of other books that were like that. Okay. Yeah. No, I didn't feel that way either. I didn't, I didn't catch that. I do think it gave me comfort in that way, but I don't think even as a 19 year old, I thought like, this is a world meant for me or something like that definitely wasn't, mm -hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't that smart. So what else did you get? What'd you, what'd you pick up from the reunion? Sure. I, I honestly think my favorite part was, uh, Tom and Emma. Actually, I have two favorite parts. Tom and Emma, that was adorable. She had a crush on him. It was so cute. <laughs> okay, I am gonna I'm gonna lay it down now, people. Okay. I believe that in like five to ten years, I can't say exactly when, it's gonna come out that they secretly got married years ago. Like maybe in the future from when we're recording this, they are they are the that's the relationship you look for. Yeah. Like that kind of support and encouragement and love and admiration for one another. Like that's what people should be looking for in their lives, yeah. I think. I mean, that's the personal thing. Like, I think they're secretly going to get married and then it'll come out and everyone will be like, all the shippers will be like, we knew it. <laughs> I hope you are right because they were adorable. Like, you could just see, like, the love and admiration. And whenever she was, like, they were, like, trying to say, like, they were just friends. I believe them, but I think they both still have, like, a little, there's something going on there. <laughs> Yeah. And of course, like there's a dynamic range of what relationships can be. And there doesn't need to be certain types of intimacy to be a very close personal relationship. But like, there's definitely more than it's a different relationship she has with Tom than she has with Dan and Rupert. A hundred percent. They just have different. Di you could just you see could the dynamics. See are different. And that's sparks were a flying. Yeah, that's OK. That's one of the things you caught. What else did you catch? So what about Dan and Helena? Speaking of sparks flying. <laughs> I know. It was a little <laughs> bit saucy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I felt like there was mutual flirting going back and forth. So I love that, like, she definitely entertained the flirting and his, like, crush. Yeah, I actually think I was thinking about that because she just seems like such a lovely person, despite all these characters that she plays. I think she's just genuinely a beautiful, lovely, <laughs> encouraging, warm person. And people can't help but love her. And so everyone kind of just picks up that love that she gives out to people and like gives it back. And in the case of Dan, yeah. it was like a little schoolboy crush <laughs> on like an older woman. And I have to applaud the audacity right? of writing that note to her about if you were 10 years older in his like autograph note to her that they hang like she and Tim Burton hang in their bathroom, their washroom in London, because that's where they live. <laughs> well, and like the funny, they were like the inside joke going back and forth. She's like, it's okay, you can say it now. You know, it's appropriate now, now that he's not, you know, 17. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are certainly people when you come of age, there are people who have big age gaps in their relationships. But I thought it was really cute. I love that she brought her teeth. Oh, I love right? that she... I mean, and she put the teeth in and you were like, oh my God, it's Bellatrix. Yeah. It's her. <laughs> and she like, it kind of like putting that into her, like it just made her character come back to life. The same thing was true with Ray Fiennes when he was sitting there and you saw him become Voldemort in the chair yes. in the interview. Yes. And you're like, oh my God, to watch that actor do his method. Yeah. Incredible, incredible. And he is super talented. I knew that before he was Voldemort, but yeah. Ugh. So good, which makes me want to make another point. Like mm. a lot of people talk about how incredible it is that these young actors became so talented and they're all such great people. And there were certainly many of them that were doing projects before Harry Potter. 
But I think it's important to consider how they spent 10 years working with the best actors of the generation mm-hmm. as the adults. It's like apprenticeships, basically. Like they got to sit there as kids and watch the masters work. Of course, they're going to get better. Of course, their raw talent is going to be like honed yeah. to be better. I mean, we we see that with all of them. I've been done. Well, Rupert hasn't done very many projects since then, but Tom's done things. Mm-hmm. Dan's done things. Emma's done things. And they've all been great. I mean, I don't know the name of the actor who plays Dean. He's in mm-hmm. Foundation on Apple TV right now, which is freaking awesome. Um, he's really good in it. He's only got a very small role, but like, I was like, that's Dean. I know who that <laughs> is. <laughs> so they all went on, but like, they learned that from getting to work with such incredible actors. And it, it just shows like how important, especially in the trades, any sort of trade of which acting is, I would say, a trade mm-hmm. or a you know craft. It's very important that you learn from the master's. And they didn't know that they were masters. So they were able to learn from these people kind of without the jitters, without any of that. So they had no idea that they were the best of the best. They were just kids. Yeah, I like how Dan Dan's first like celebrity moment when they brought in a new actor was Gary Oldman, who is also <laughs> super talented and fantastic. But like Gary Oldman, of all the people right. he was working with, Maggie Smith, Alan Rickman, yeah. the names that are household names, even outside the British theater world. Mm-hmm. And it's Gary Oldman that he picked. I mean, Gary Oldman's great. I can't can't deny that. Right. But it's just funny that that's the, the. I think they probably each had that with one of the actors at some point. But yeah. that's the one for him. Of course, it seems like Dan in some ways did get starstruck more, right? Yeah, he was very an odd by Gary Oldman. He develops a crush on Helena Bottom Carter. Yeah, it kind of just in his nature maybe to be a little bit more starstruck. Yeah, maybe so. He even tells Emma like, "Be cool, be cool." Worried yeah, that the they would. Chat. Yeah, <laughs> they wouldn't be. They wouldn't be cool in front of him. They'd be, yeah, they'd be too, uh, too ner- like starstruck. Even though that, that was pure projection, that was all him being nervous. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so the only other note that I had from the reunion, just so that we don't spend an entire episode on it, mm-hmm. is um, it was really interesting. And this is something my husband pointed out that they didn't really address how the actors, many of them, kind of did like sharp lefts after Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Like Dan went on and did some really unusual projects, and is now doing that show about the Oregon Trail. I think it's called uh, Miracle Workers. Um, Emma went to Brown and cut off all her hair. Rupert kind of stopped doing anything uh, and had a kid. And then Tom became TikTok famous. Like they they didn't really address like the in-between, right? Because it's not just about the reunion and Harry Potter. It's like what this has meant in our lives and where we've gone since then. They didn't really cover that at all, which I thought was, I I thought that was a good point my husband made and, and wanted to make that point as well, because I would love to hear them talk about what they've worked on since and how Harry Potter affected their lives and all that too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I feel like they kept that separate on purpose. I have to have something to talk about at the 40 year reunion, 30 year reunion, 30 years. Right. Sure. Sure. Cause in 10 years, that's when the final movie will come out, have come out 20 years earlier. So it'll be the 30th anniversary of Sorcerer's Stone mm-hmm. and the 20th anniversary or the 10th and the 20th, whatever you get it. Yep. Yep. They're 10 years apart, the movies. So they'll yeah. be able to do another reunion in 10 years and we will maybe be here for it. We'll we'll get through all seven books and all the movies and everything. And we'll then, you know, years later, you'll have a new episode in your feed from us talking about the latest reunion of Harry Potter. Love that. (laughs) Okay. So do we want to dive into the book? Yes. Yes, let's do it. Okay. So as a reminder, if this is your first episode that you're listening to, thanks for joining us. We are reading Harry Potter backwards. So we are still in Deathly Hollows. You can't see it, but I'm holding up the book. It is super thick. We are almost almost a third of the way through, but we're going backwards. So we start by reading the last sentence of the chapter, and then we read the chapter, and then we go back a chapter, and last sentence, chapter, and so on backwards through the book. So we are going to be covering three chapters in the remainder of this episode. Do you want to give us a recap of the first one? Absolutely. So we have chapter 29, The Lost Diadem. So Neville finds Harry, Hermione, and Ron for the first time at Hogshead Inn, the bar, and it's ran by Aveforth. Um, he's super excited to see them, and he begins to update them. Everything that's been happening at Hogwarts, like all the horrors, he has like his face has like bruises on it and slashes. Uh, so he leads them from the bar to the room of requirements, where Dumbledore's army um, has been camping out. They're all just sitting there waiting on him, and then the army, much to Harry's kind of dismay, um, ends up helping them and figuring out that the item they're looking for is the Ravenclaw diadem. They decide to go into the castle and Luna Lovegood um, helps Harry. They sneak out and they go to the Ravenclaw common room to see the statue with the diadem on it. Um, But they end up getting caught by Electo Caro. 
Yep. And the last sentence of this chapter reads, The sloping shouldered figure of Electo Caro was standing before him, and even as Harry raised his wand, she pressed a stubby forefinger to the skull and snake branded on her forearm. Mm -hmm. I'm glad we don't have to read what happens after that, because it was intense. Okay? You can hear it in previous episodes. This is a great chapter. A lot of stuff. A lot of movement, I feel, in this chapter. Yeah. Starting with our man Neville, you know, him stepping up, him literally Mm -hmm. becoming the leader of Dumbledore's army and just not putting up with any nonsense from any of these evil leaders. Love to see that from him. Mm -hmm. Yep. The Neville fan club is still going strong. I am super excited to keep moving through this story of Harry Potter focusing on Neville Mm -hmm. a little bit. I, I marked several points in the initial part of this chapter where they're walking down the passageway back to Hogwarts where Neville is just just awesome. He's just been, so, he's such a different character than what people have in their minds or what they remember of him as an early character in the books being a kind of, you know, nerdy, out of place kid who didn't really have any friends because he's leading, he's basically leading Dumbledore's mm-hmm. army. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. He's still the same guy though where he has this enthusiasm whenever he sees, you know, the gang, he sees all three of them and is just so excited. And it's like, I told him you would come. I knew you were coming. And he just, Neville is like hope to me. I know Harry Potter is the hope, right? But Neville though is just the, is more encompasses Mm -hmm. that hope because he just always believes. And maybe encompasses belief because he always believes that Harry, but he believes in Harry. He always believes in Harry, which I think I've talked about before, but it just, it shows up here again. Yeah. And you have to wonder why he didn't become their friend. Yeah. Like, was it was it from Sorcerer's Stone when he stands up to them that they just, you know, like, anyway, because I'm thinking I had this friend in London who at the very end of my year living in London, he and I went out for dinner and he was like, you know, I always wish I had stayed friends with you and some of your other friends. And I was like, I wish you had too. We always wanted you to hang out with us. And we just don't know why that mm-hmm. happened. And so I think sometimes that does just happen. And maybe it's not a conscious decision on anybody's yeah. part, but that people just don't become friends or they don't stay friends. And there's no real reason yeah. for that. Because think how different the story would be if one, if there had been four of them, and if Neville with this character development that he's had would have been part of that journey. He becomes such a strong ally yeah. for them. They probably could have gotten it done a lot sooner with Neville because he's smart in a different way and very passionate about the mission. I almost wonder if that would have been too many people, though, because I do think Neville starts to be kind of a like a leader or almost like a alpha or something. You know what I mean? Where maybe that just wouldn't that dynamic wouldn't have worked. Yeah. And that's why maybe J.K. Rowling didn't include it because she tried to picture them together and it just didn't really it didn't work. He needed his own way to lead. Yeah. And the dynamics of children in groups I mean, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but when there's three friends, they can mm-hmm. all be friends. When there's four, there's two pairs of yep. best friends. It's just a different dynamic. And so maybe that's part of what she saw and recognized in having just yeah, three. 100%. Loved the story about Neville's oh, grand. I know. Kicking yeah. butt when, they, when the Death Eaters show up yeah, for her. Absolutely. Uh, she is a cool granny, which we, I don't feel like we learned until this, the this half of the book, like, or this basically few chapters of the book, you start to see, oh. His grandma's cool. You know, she may have been kind of strict and scary to him as a kid, but you actually see she's very powerful and yeah, pretty awesome. Yeah. And one thing that they, I would say is a theme that isn't necessarily overt in any of the books, but how a child looking like their parents or behaving like their parents can have an impact on the people around Mm -hmm. them. For example, Snape always sees Lily in Harry's eyes. That's probably the same thing that happens for Neville's gran. Mm -hmm. When she looks at this grandchild, she has to raise because her son and his wife have been rendered incapable of even caring for themselves. And that that tension that comes from that sort of relationship, because yeah. um, the main other scene with her is in Order of the Phoenix when they run into the Longbottoms at uh, mm-hmm. St. Mungo's. Oh, yeah. And she does not come across warm or proud or anything of Neville in that scene. But by now, he's been fighting and she's proud of him. And we see that in the, the later chapters that we've already covered. Yeah, yeah. I would like to have a little more backstory on that too. Like, was she kind of mean to him at home? Was she, I, you know, like what, what was it like living with his gran? Mm-hmm. Probably a lot like the Dursleys. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to whip you into shape yeah. is a sort of general philosophy. In the case of the Dursleys with Harry, it was, I'm going to whip you into being a muggle and not whip literally, yes. but you know, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Um, she was trying to make him into a, his gran was trying to make Neville into a stronger mm-hmm. wizard and, Maybe that wasn't what he really needed to be a stronger wizard. He needed friendship and warmth and 
support and, you know, things that most kids, right. all kids need. <laughs> uh, what about Jenny's moment getting jealous? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a really very interesting little dynamic after, well, we haven't gotten there yet. So we're jumping around, but like sh- the way that she and Harry end mm-hmm. things, which we will eventually get to in these in this season. It's kind of just very complicated. They clearly have like a complicated dynamic, her yes. and Harry, because they can't be obvious, but it is very obvious to the audience, yes. us, and probably everyone else yeah. in the room. <laughs> so basically, for those who didn't read the chapter, this is where Ginny uh, gets a little jealous. So Cho, somebody, Harry needs somebody to take him into the Ravenclaw common room. And Cho immediately is like, oh, I'll do it. I can get you in. And Ginny's like, mm, um, no, I think, I think Luna wants to take him. L- Luna, you want to take him? Luna's like... Yeah, I can take him. <laughs> and okay. like, oh man, she has like a disappointed look on her face. And then Jenny's like, oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's my man. You cannot go in yep. there with him. Yep. yep. Nope. Not. Don't trust. Don't trust. Yeah. The other thing that jumped out at me in the same part of this scene is they're talking about why Harry has come back to Hogwarts is the lack of awareness that these students still have about what's really at mm. stake. So Harry says, we haven't come back to stay. And Luna arrives and she says, we're going to fight the Caros out of Hogwarts. And they don't realize that the world is so much bigger than mm-hmm. Hogwarts. This isn't about Hogwarts, which is very much the final transition that these young people are going to take is our school was our world. And now there's a bigger world that we're going to go join. And the battle is part of that transition for these particular characters. But I just thought it was interesting how so many of the people in the room still just think it's about Hogwarts and like making school great again. Yeah. And it's not, it's, it's about a much bigger uh, issue. And, and Ron kind of has to be like, guys, that's, we're, we're not, we're trying to defeat Voldemort. Right. Like it is not about not getting detention anymore. Right. You know, this is a life and death end of the world kind of stuff. Um, just, just a very interesting kind of moment that I, I had never picked up on when I was reading it in, the, in past weeks. Yeah. I think that also shows you just the, how much more mature and how much more the big three are dealing with. You know what I mean? Like they're dealing with the the whole entire world, muggles, everybody saving the world where, you know, most of the kids their age, although they are in the war, it's a little less, not important. It's important to them, but it's just not as big. You know, we're not just... The stakes exactly. are lower. Yeah. So let's talk about the Ravenclaw mm, common room. Yeah, go for it. I know you love it. This was great. I loved getting to go into the Ravenclaw common room and it made me wish a little bit that I were not so <laughs> Slytherin. I am definitely part Ravenclaw, but I'm, I lead Slytherin uh, because this common room sounds mm-hmm. awesome. It is a tower. It has huge windows looking out over the surrounding mountains. It has a dome ceiling with stars painted in it and midnight blue carpet. Like this is my dream room they're describing. In fact, I have seen several Airbnbs around the world that try and do this really? room and it is it is still cool even in the yeah. mobile world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the room for me, actually. If, if, it's, it's funny, again, like we talked about how Dumbledore says they they sort too young in in mm-hmm. Hogwarts uh, when he's talking to Snape. And I feel the same. Like, I identified as a Slytherin very young. And I'm like, well, you should have let me see the common <laughs> room because I would have been a Ravenclaw. I would have worked harder in my school. No, I did work hard in school. But, like, I would have leaned into that part of myself to end up in this common yeah. room. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Valerie um, is big on space. She has a space tourism website. She's obsessed with it. She called herself a space nerd. So this absolutely fits fits your personality. This is the room mm-hmm. for me. I can't. Who am I living underground? Come on, that's just not me. But hey, that's where the Slytherins are. I got to be with my people. I understand. I understand. I also probably I think Ravenclaw would be my second my second choice. Everyone's so smart. You just sit around talking. I mean, that's literally what we're doing right now. And I. Love it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is what we yeah. just did. <laughs> exactly. Do you have anything else in this chapter? Yeah, you know what? Uh, Ron is on page 578. Basically, he knows the five exceptions to Gamp's law. It just he slowly starts starting to pick up the things Hermione's throwing at him. You know, he's getting a little smarter. I think she's rubbing off on him. So you like you start to see him. I, I thought that was a really like clever line that she threw in there for a little bit of lightness, uh, which we've talked about being a tool that J.K. Rowling uses throughout this end of the yeah. book. Uh, and that, yeah, he, he listens when Hermione talks. He just doesn't always act like he's listening. Right. Yes, 100%. So let's, uh, let's turn it back a little bit and jump to chapter 28, which is The Missing Mirror. So in this chapter, you have Harry, Ron, Hermione, and they operate into Hogsmeade sets off the charms that the Death Eaters have set up. 
and they are under the invisibility cloak, though. They can't see them. The Death Eaters are running around trying to figure out who did it. They immediately assume it is Harry, and they begin to look for him. Harry ends up having to set off his Patronus, and so they are like, oh, it's Harry, it's Harry, but Abe Forth opens his bar, and he saves them, claiming it was him, and that he has a goat as a Patronus, and that's why they thought it was him, telling them they're stupid. He tells the story of his own life, and Dumbledore's life, and then basically that leads us into what we just talked about, where Neville comes into the bar. Yep, and the final sentence of this chapter... Out of it, his hair overgrown, his face cut, his robes ripped, clambered the real Neville Longbottom, who gave a roar of delight, leapt down from the mantelpiece, and yelled, I knew you'd come, I knew it, Harry. Yeah, see, there's that faith again. That just, he just believes in him. Yep, yep, he just knows. I I, want to come back to goats. We'll come back to goats at some point. I've got it marked in my book. But I want to talk more about a lot of different things that happen. Again, this chapter feels like it's a lot of like moving through stuff. In some ways it is, right? Because we're going to, when we, the final chapter we're going to cover in this episode is about Voldemort realizing that they're going after Mm -hmm. Horcruxes and Harry finally realizing where the final Horcrux is. And so then there's these chapters that we're moving through right now, which are just kind of like getting us to the next important thing that needs to happen, which is Harry finding the final Horcrux. But there's a lot of little details that are sprinkled throughout this chapter that I think are worth mentioning or pointing out the first one that i had was about the invisibility Mm -hmm. cloak so i have personally taken interest Mm -hmm. in that Mm -hmm. particular Mm -hmm. hallow and its abilities and they cast a charm they say uh, asio Mm -hmm. cloak and the cloak doesn't even attempt to be taken The, the spell doesn't even work so this is a very cool object that I just really like seeing it from the, this perspective that we're going, where I know a lot about it. I look forward to going back into the tale of the three brothers to hear of its origin, whether or not it was actually, that's actually a, a real story or myth Dumbledore has already thrown into question. But I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I did too. The other thing that jumped out at me right off the bat in this chapter as Aberforth saves them and they come into the hogshead and he sends them up the back stairs is they end up in a room. And this room is incredibly important, though probably you would miss it if you're reading quickly because you want to finish this incredible book. Uh, This is very likely the room where the prophecy was made Mm -hmm. that started it all, Mm -hmm. where Sybil Trelawney came for her job interview, gave a prophecy to to Dumbledore, Albus Dumbledore, and Snape was waiting outside. And the reason I think that this is that room is where else would Dumbledore go in this building than the place where he can see his sister? Which means that this room is super important. And the fact that like, we finally learn the story of the Dumbledore family and that Rita Skeeter was pretty dang yeah. accurate in her telling of that in The Life and Lives of Albus Dumbledore is very incredible. And it's a room, you don't think as much about the spaces that things occur yeah. in, but it's it's fascinating that this is that room. And, and you would almost miss it if you didn't pay attention to like, oh, they're just in a room. Like, no, this is a very important room to Harry's life. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I do love how that happens a lot in this book where everything means something. Speaking Mm -hmm. of, did you notice page 561 and it says the firelight made the grimy glimpses of ape forest glasses momentarily opaque, a bright white, uh, I miswrote that, but and Harry remembered the blind eyes of the giant spider Aragog. Oh, no, I did not catch that in this reading. Like, why? You know what I mean? That's just an interesting thing to bring back all of a sudden. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't have an answer. I just found it interesting. Yeah. That's an interesting analogy that she kind of is, or a you know, mm-hmm. simile she's kind of drawing between Aberforth and Aragog, but I don't quite understand it now that you yeah. say it. Well yeah. spotted. Well maybe spotted. our, uh, maybe if anyone has an opinion on that, send us an email or a DM. Mm-hmm. Leave it in your review when you leave us a review. <laughs> <laughs> oh, another thing I caught this kind of on the next page uh, in our copies that mm-hmm. we're reading is the, the Aberforth says secrets and lies Albus learned them at our mother's mm, knee. Yes. Which to me says throughout this book, mm-hmm. Harry has been very much dealing with the anger of what Dumbledore put him through, Albus yeah. put him through. And how he didn't tell him everything and he made him figure it all himself. That's actually just Dumbledore's nature from how he was raised. Yeah. Not from him learning that to trust people. He was learning it from his mother who was hiding their sister. You know, all the dynamics that they had in their family. So it actually kind of to me, gave me a sense of empathy for Albus Mm -hmm. Dumbledore. For all the times he didn't tell Harry things, he learned not to tell people things. In some ways, he's kind of like Voldemort like that. He does not trust Mm -hmm. everyone with the information that they might need to know to do the right thing. You know, we could say, and I think it's in 
the chapter we're going to cover next, Voldemort's like, I'm not going to tell Snape yes. why I think Harry's going to break into the right. castle. Maybe if he had, they could have actually stopped him. But because he doesn't trust anyone with all the information, he ends up being vulnerable. Yep. And Albus does the same thing in this case. He, he doesn't give Harry the information. He lets him discover it and it works out for the best. But Dumbledore couldn't have known that was going to be the case. Yeah. See, I took that sentence a little bit differently. Learn secrets at our mother's knee. I felt like she told him so many secrets. Like she told him probably things that a young wizard shouldn't have known, which kind of made him who he was. Interesting. I didn't. Yeah, we definitely read that differently. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) To me, it was like you you keep secrets and you tell lies to protect Mm -hmm. things. And that translated into the way that Dumbledore behaved toward Harry from the time he was a very small child. Your version makes more sense. Mine just sounds cooler. (laughs) It does sound really cool. That's how Dumbledore is so good. Yeah, that's what I thought. No, now he's also just, he's good at magic. He's just good. Yeah, you know, and he continues to talk about how like a fourth is like Dumbledore doesn't care about you. You're going to die. And you kind of get to see Harry start thinking about like, he's like, you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I've gone Mm -hmm. this far. This is what I'm doing. This is my course. I'm on it. Um, You're not going to convince me otherwise, no matter what Dumbledore, you know, what, what Albus did or didn't do it. I'm on this path. Yeah, there's actually some foreshadowing two two times in this chapter. That's one of them. The one, the other one is before this when Harry decides to cast his Patronus and he says he would mm-hmm. do anything to avoid yep. the Dementor's kiss no matter the outcome, which means he's acknowledging they may catch me, they may turn me over to Voldemort, he may kill me, and it will be better than being subjected to the Dementor's kiss. He's already coming to terms with but that. But the second sentence is him mostly thinking of Hermione and Ron. So really, it was a more of a mm-hmm. selfish act. Like, yes, obviously, he doesn't want that. But I saw it more as like, oh, I just don't want these two to have to suffer that way. But that's exactly why he turns himself over yeah. to Voldemort later. It, it, it's kind of like you can pick up on that little little times that Harry is coming to terms with the fact that this may be the final yeah. outcome. I mean, that's what the prophecy said, right? right? <laughs> it says, neither may live while the other survives. Right. So he's finally kind of, yeah. to the audience, articulating right. that. But he doesn't know that yet. I mean, he doesn't officially know that. He hasn't come to terms with it in its full implications until, of course, Snape shares the final piece of information. You know, overall, I just, hearing that story, like, you could tell even Harry's uncomfortable. He felt sick. Ron was uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable. You know, hearing that story is just so tragic. And you kind of, like, I wonder, it's interesting to see where Albus went as an adult because he could have gone many ways. He could have hated muggles, which I guess for a hot second, he kind of did. You know, he's like, let's, let's take over the world so that we can be, you know, we can do whatever we want to. But he ends up not hating muggles and he wants to protect muggles, which is, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's interesting. He did choose good. You know, he may have made some mistakes, but at the end of the day, he did choose good over power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a very different weight to that story that Aberforth tells them when he's telling them from his personal experience, as opposed to when we read it from Rita Skeeter's perspective. Mm -hmm. But I'll be curious to see how Harry reacts to the story the first time he hears Mm -hmm. it. Because in some ways, it's the same story. They're just hearing it again and validating that the story that he read in the book was true. That was one thing I wanted to keep an eye on is I think he feels sick after he reads it too, not just when he hears it from Aberforth. Right. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And what about Dumbledore and the Hallows? Like, was that always a plan on Dumbledore's part to resurrect his mother? Like, even whenever he was trying to do the Hallows to be more powerful, I wonder if he wanted to resurrect his mother. I thought it was for his sister. Oh. I always thought he wanted to resurrect his sister. Maybe. Well, no. So, actually, I think we're going to have to get there. Okay. I don't know when it's going to be explained or if I, if I didn't catch it when we read it this time. But I believe Dumbledore says... He explains what their focus was for each of the Hallows. He says, the Elder One, so we can win all the battles, because he and Grindelwald are working together. The Resurrection Stone, because Grindelwald wanted to raise an army of Inferi. And we didn't really care about the cloak, because we were both so capable of transfiguring ourselves. So I don't know that he actually had a thought of what the stone would do for him personally. Yeah. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe that wasn't until after his sister died, like you said. Because we know later, that's why he had the, the stone on his hand. He put the ring on his hand because he became 
overcome with this the the urge to bring back his sister and mother. I think he his great regrets in life are that he did not, especially his sister, he could not protect mm-hmm. them. I'm going to flip back while we're chatting and see if I can pull that part out because um, I know that he addresses it and I just don't remember off the top of my yeah. head. And while you're looking, I just, the whole tale is sad because I don't, I mean, I know family and you should protect your family, but I don't truly understand why they didn't turn in their sister. Like why, what was so bad about St. Mungo's? You know what I mean? Like she probably would have been safer and happier there because, you know, she could get the care she needed. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I found it. Um, I agree with you, by the way. And as you were saying that, I was thinking about Neville's parents, like, there are people who need professional care and that shouldn't be something that has a stigma. Yeah. It should be something that we encourage and help support families through, which, cause it's always hard when that happens to a family member. Yeah. Okay. So here we go. At the heart of our schemes, the Deathly Hallows, how they fascinated him, how they fascinated both of us, the unbeatable wand, the weapon that would lead us to power, the resurrection stone to him, though I pretended not to know it, it meant an army of inferi. To me, I confess, it meant the return of my parents and the lifting of all responsibility from my shoulders. And the cloak? Somehow we never discussed the cloak much. Both of us could conceal ourselves well enough without the cloak, the true magic of which, of course, is that it can be used to protect and shield others as well as its own. I thought that if we ever found it, it might be useful in hiding Ariana, but our interest in the cloak was mainly that it completed the trio. So it does does protect. Mm -hmm. Yep. And... Going back to your original question about the stone, he wanted to bring back his parents so that they could take Ariana from him and he could just go do what he wanted, which is why he feels like an ashamed schoolboy when he's telling Harry the truth about himself. Yeah, yeah that's dark. All right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> On that note, uh, goats. Yeah, Let's should we talk yeah. about goats and then we can jump back to another chapter. So the main thing I wanted to point out is that I want to go back and I'm not going to do it because we're doing this in a certain way and hopefully we get to do all seven yeah. seasons. I am super curious about this Aberforth goat connection. Oh. Like they claim in the first book, as my memory serves, about like unusual charming of goats or something. Like, I just want to know. I don't think oh, Aber- yeah. I think it's meant to be it's meant to be an allusion to a rather rude implication about certain types of people in Britain and mm-hmm. sheep. Uh, I think that's what it's always kind of meant to be. And I won't say any more than that because it will get us the explicit rating on our podcast. But if you don't know, ask your parents or Google it, whatever age you are. Yeah. But I don't think that's the case. I think he just really likes goats. And you know what? I know people who really like goats. They like goat yoga and they like goat farms and stuff. And that's not weird, even though everyone in the wizarding world pretends like it's weird. Now, it is not good to do unusual charms on goats. That's fair. Right. (laughs) But I love that Aberforth has a goat as his. Patronus, because that, that it's like a little thread and it runs all the way back to Sorcerer's Stone, I believe. Yeah. And I look forward to tra- tracing that tiny little thread about Aberforth. Yeah, that was a, was a good catch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Delightful. Cute. I think it's not nefarious. I don't think it's illicit. I think he just really likes goats, people. Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay, so let's jump back in time. We've got one more chapter to do. This one's a fast Mm -hmm. one. So we're going to run a little bit long this episode, but we appreciate you sticking with us because we're going to do one more chapter before we're done. All right. Chapter 27, The Final Hiding Place. This chapter begins with the big three on the back of a dragon after escaping from Gringotts and retrieving a horcrux, Helga Hufflepuff's cup. They get to safety, they get on the beach, and Harry has a flash of Voldemort realizing they know about his other horcruxes, giving away that the last one is hidden at Hogwarts. The chapter ends with them heading to Hogsmeade to find a way into the castle. Yep, and that final sentence reads, Harry pulled the cloak down as far as it would go, and together they turned on the spot into the crushing darkness. Very foreboding. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, though. Yeah, yeah. So what did you pick up in this chapter? Um, You know, it all happens so very quickly. I did, I did like, so... They weren't able to retrieve the sword to be able to uh, destroy the Horcrux. But I did find it interesting going back to our man Neville. He was able to. The sword came to him in the end. And it wasn't coming to them when they needed it to destroy the Horcrux. By the way, a really quick sidebar. In the reunion, they showed a clip of that scene in. And I had never noticed before that when Neville looks in the hat, it shines on his face. And you hear the sound of the sword. I cannot wait to rewatch the movie in full because it's this tiny little moment where 
Neville looks into the sorting hat and sees the sword waiting for him. It kind of, you know, when you read the books, you know that that's going to yeah. happen. But like for the audience of a moviegoer, they didn't know. Anyway, I just thought that was yeah, really that cool. Yeah, that is cool. Keep going. Back in this yes, chapter. Yes, yes, I know. <laughs> I want to watch the seventh movie, but I obviously don't want to because I want to wait until we're done with this season. So killing me a little bit. Yeah. Seventh movie and eighth movie. We got about a bunch of, there'll be a bunch of movies to watch. <laughs> yes. One of my favorite scenes, speaking of the movies, one of my favorite scenes in the uh-huh. movies happens in this chapter, which is a very short 10 pages. might be one of the shortest chapters in this book. It goes very fast. And it's the scene where they have just climbed out of the lake and they are putting Dittany on their clothing, on their wounds and like having a snack and just like resting for a hot second. And in the movies, it's a really, really cool shot. It's called a oneer. It means it's just one camera shot. And the cameraman is moving around the three of them as they change clothing. And I've always loved scenes like that in movies. There's one in White Christmas where Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye are changing. It's just a real testament to acting ability to not only be putting on clothing, changing, delivering lines, watching this camera move around without ever breaking. It just works really well. Um, It's not what's in the book, which is a very rare time where the deviation from the book is actually something I prefer. Mm -hmm. But I like, I marked it just because it's one of my favorite scenes in the entire eighth movie because it's such a beautiful piece of film yeah. making anyway just had to give a shout out to the the big three actors yeah. who made that one of the best scenes in my personal opinion yeah, I have to look for that you know, once we once we finish at least half of this series right yeah 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 we're getting there what about bellatrix and lucius so bellatrix and lucius threw others behind them in their race for the door and those who were left were slain all of them i marked that also because i was like these two are just really self-centered and like they are self-interested. And I thought going back to the reunion, it was good stuff that came out of there. They spent a whole bunch of time in that talking about how Draco is the product of mm-hmm. Lucius. And Lucius is this very almost psychopathic, neglectful, abusive father. And it's no surprise that Draco turns out such a dark character himself. And this is kind of that case in point, like Lucius... I think Narcissa is the heart mm-hmm. of their relationship because she's the one who tries to save Draco and she takes the two of them and walks them off the bridge at the end of the eighth movie, you know, like oh, down the bridge, not off the bridge, obviously, you know, like she's the, she's the one that connects the family and makes it a yeah. family because Lucius just doesn't care about anyone right. but himself. It, it's very clear from that behavior and Bellatrix we already knew was right. like that. Although in their defense, if I, you know, was hanging out with a really super evil guy, and I knew he was about to be really mad. I'd be pushing people too. Like at that point, like it's you or me, man. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And 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 in the neck, literally just a couple pages later, Voldemort is thinking about how mm-hmm. how he can't believe that Harry's figured out that they they were Horcruxes and he's going after them. And it was a grave mistake to trust Bellatrix and Malfoy. Mm-hmm. And so I think they do know they're in trouble. They've always been on his yeah. list for first the diary and now the cup. And they, I, I guess I agree. Like it, I, w- I probably would do the same. I'd be like, I'm getting the right. heck out of here. But I also wouldn't go to battle with the guy. I would literally just like, I'm going to France. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm crossing the I'm channel, whatever. Yeah, I wouldn't say. I mean, other than the fact that for Malfoy's case, Draco is still at Hogwarts, right. but I would have just gotten the heck out of right. Dodge. <laughs> wait till it all shakes loose and then stay in hiding or come back when everything's over. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and you see talking about Voldemort saying he doesn't trust anyone, you see again his downfall for one, not trusting, but for two, his ego. His ego comes up again and again, assuming he is better than everyone else. No one else is as smart as me. No one else has been to the depths of the castle, speaking of the rumor requirements. Like he just, well, they, they couldn't know about the the gaunts, my house. They couldn't, well, well, I guess maybe. Well, they couldn't know about this place. You know, he just assumes you couldn't know about the, the cave. cave. Exactly. You'll never know about the room of requirement. Um, actually, Harry knows about all that stuff because Dumbledore knew about most of it. Yep. Well, and two people found the cave. Oh, yeah. Regulus found the cave as well. Uh, the last thing that I have in this chapter is the right at the end of the chapter, they talk about just, we just need to get going. We just need to get to Hogwarts. We got to, it's the last Horcrux that we know that he is not coming for immediately. So Harry says, we just need to get there. We need to go to Hogsmeade and figure out a way to get into the castle. Mm-hmm. And Hermione, in the movie, I, she doesn't exactly say it this way in... Uh, oh, she does say it this way. We need a plan. <laughs> and this is in that same scene that I was just describing from the movie that I love, where, you know, Hermione's like, we need to come up with a plan. And Harry's like, when have any of our plans ever worked? Like, that's the the line from the movie that's not in yeah. the book. But it's, it is very true. Like, they 
they plan to get in the ministry. They, pl- mm-hmm. they plan all these things and it never goes according to plan, which shows you need to have a rough idea what you're going for and adjust on the ro- on the fly. Because yeah. every time that at least this three get into anything, it ends up going sideways, which to be fair, I've learned that in the last two years of living, you know, yeah. all the best laid p- plans, right. right? Like, and it's a new year for us. It's kind of a, it's something I'm trying to incorporate personally. It's like, you need a plan, but like, when have our ever, when have our plans ever gone according to plan? 100%. <laughs> Anything else in this chapter? No, no, that was it. It's a short one. It was really short. I I will check. I will fact check myself. I'm pretty sure that's probably the shortest chapter in the book, which is why we lumped them all in together. Oh, oh my goodness. What are you wearing? <laughs> uh, these are the, uh, what are they called? See, I, I do this every time. I forget what they're called. I'm horrible, horrible, Harry. Specter Specs. Specs. I know they're Specter something. Specter Specs. I'm sorry, guys. My, my brain doesn't hold certain things in. That's why I'm glad we didn't have to list all the actors and stuff. This is what happens <laughs> when you start reading Harry Potter when you're 18, 19 years old. <laughs> okay. Come on. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> now we're getting personal. The reason I am wearing these, though, is we are doing a Gilderoy Lockhart style quiz. And today's is actually our favorite piece of Harry Potter memorabilia. You know mine. Yep. As a reminder... If you listen to every episode of this season, at the end of the season, we're going to do a big social media campaign giveaway thing. And the person who gets the most number of right answers about us, because it's the Gilderoy Lockhart quiz, is going to win a really cool prize. And I have been getting served so many ads on Instagram about cool Harry Potter stuff that I am bookmarking them nice. to put together a really cool prize pack for whoever wins Love this. That. So yours, Brie, yours are the mm-hmm. Specter Specs. And mine is my wand, which I got at the Wizarding World, of course, where most people get their wands. And I won't go into the long story of this. Maybe I'll do it as a an IGTV mm-hmm. or something really long form about how my wand is not really my wand yeah. anymore. But this is my wand. It sits right above my desk. It's always there. Don't use it for anything. Just love having it around as a piece of a uh, piece of my past, yeah. piece of something that I love. So if you guys don't know by now, I lived in a camper van for four years and I used these. I think before I lived in a van for a costume, I was obviously Luna Lovegood. And this was the only thing. I mean, I just, I don't have very much memorabilia. You can see my empty wall. Eventually it'd be filled back up, but I didn't have any memorabilia. And I had to convince Sean, my boyfriend, to let me keep these. Like I would hide them and he'd be like, Brie, you do not need these. And I'm like, I'm not getting rid of them. They're expensive for one. I mean, like 20 bucks, but they felt expensive. So I was not getting rid of them. They survived. Yeah, you all can't see my desk, but it is covered in various memorabilia from all of the projects I love. So I could not live in a van. That is the answer to that. You need a big storage unit. Well, when we lived on our boat, we right. had one. So and we, our boat was bigger than your van. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> okay, let's wrap it up here. Thanks everyone for tuning in. We really appreciate it. If you have enjoyed this episode, we hope you will go to your podcast player of choice and leave us a rating, five stars if you really liked us, five stars even if you didn't <laughs> like us, and then leave us a review with the real feedback. We just The five stars are super important for new podcasts like yes. us. They're super important for all podcasts. So if you enjoy this show, you enjoy other shows, give them reviews. They need it. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. Anything else we need to cover? Nope. If there's anything you want to add about the reunion or anything, please give us a shout out via email, uh, podcast at followthebutterflies.com, Instagram, bell jar pod, uh, same with Twitter and TikTok. Yep. We are on the socials. Brie has gotten me on the socials and we would love to hear from you. Uh, We are very excited. We are officially moving forward and we will see you this time next week. All right. See you next time.